Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. You're not going to believe this. Oh, oh my God. God. Five stars. Five and a half stars. Papa. My dad is my hero. Grandpa, are you ready? I love a good happy ending. Oh boy. Hey, hey, It's a phony baloney. And a tit for tatter. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> Today we have Anthony Jeannot. He spent an entire year taking heroic doses of mushrooms. Today we are going to talk about that. He says it's to manage his anxiety. He's also a comedian, so it might help him get out on the stage. Anthony, welcome. Oh my gosh. So my husband is super interested in your story and I literally just got like 10 questions for him before. (laughs) That's cool. I look forward to... Hopefully adding something that that he hasn't already heard. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I was looking back at our notes and you said that you did between six to eight grams. Yeah. Once a month for a year. That is heroic doses. Yeah. 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 That was always, always the plan. I guess it it goes back to why I started it, right? Which is that. I was diagnosed with anxiety and it came late in life and surprising to me. So I was reading everything like, how can I, I guess in my head at the time, particularly, I felt like fix it. I thought it was something like a jigsaw puzzle that you, because it felt like a misdiagnosis at the time. So I was like, no, 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 surely it's just something that if I do the right things, I don't have to worry about it. And so I started going to therapy and I was always like part of my therapy sessions always were me going to the therapist. Yeah, but what about this thing that I read online? Like, should I do this? And we kind of, I, I think partly because I was annoying her so much, we kind of came up with a process which was like, okay, you do that stuff on your own, which is at first it wasn't going to be magic mushrooms. It was like meditation and the isolation pods where you go and you sit in with no sensory stimulus for like an hour. And she was like, oh, you go and do that stuff on your own. And then whatever comes up in those self-exploration sessions, we can chat about and and maybe that'll help you get more out of your therapy, but I'm not, all of this stuff you want to try, a lot of it's new to me, so I can't, yes or no, it will help sort of thing. So that's how it started and went to a meditation retreat for a while and, you know, just got to talking to people. And one of the guys I met there was like, oh, if if this is your reason for all of this, then you should probably look into magic mushrooms. And so I started researching them. I'd I'd never done them before. I hadn't done any kind of drugs in the longest time, like a decade. But the more I researched them, the more it seemed like there was enough science there to say that it was unlikely to do harm and it could possibly do good. So I thought, oh, you know, why not try it? And I definitely felt anecdotally that the stuff that I'd read in the literature was kind of true. And so then just in terms of like wanting to to get on top of whatever was happening in my head, understand it, I just then made it part of my routine. So every day I would meditate for 20 minutes, every week I would do the sensory deprivation pods once, and then every month I would take a massive ego dose amount of magic mushrooms. And yeah, it was a really kind of... I would say it's one of two super transformative years that I've had that like really helped me grow, have a sense of management and direction that I'm now much more happy with. 
Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. Do you remember what that first big dose was like after you hadn't done it for so long? The first dose was the first dose of magic mushrooms. Like that. I okay. never, I'd, I'd taken like other drugs, like, you know. Right. And I, I do remember because, so here's the thing, right? I was in a 10 year relationship. I wasn't somebody who was doing drugs at the time. And there was lots of debate around when you first take magic mushrooms, whether you should have somebody with you or not, whether that person should be doing it or not. But all of it came down to like, at the end of the day, you need to feel as comfortable and safe as possible. And I didn't really have anybody in my life who I felt would understand or would support me going out and taking a bunch of magic mushrooms because I, I got told I had mental health issues. I think a lot of people would have thought it was a breakdown rather than a treatment, you know what I mean? And so I was still living at home with my parents. And so the, the way I designed a safe space to try it was to just kind of not tell anyone what I was doing and book a really expensive hotel room so it would be nice and fancy and comfortable and to do it by myself. And one of the other things, one of the strange or cruel tricks of, of magic mushrooms is that, or any edible drug really, is that it takes ages to kick in. It is inconsistent. It could take anywhere from 45 minutes to like two hours for the onset to happen. Some of the early signs that the onset are ha is happening are very similar to just heightened anxiety or like, you know, like you, you get a bit of a, you know, buzz and a bit of a light head and all of these could just be me overthinking it you know so I remember the first time I did it I ate the mushrooms and I sat there for about an hour and then I thought oh this hasn't worked this I thought oh this hasn't worked I'll go I'll go for a walk and I, I got about to the hotel lobby and then I thought no 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 maybe I sh should go back to the hotel room and and maybe I was a bit premature in, in deciding this hadn't worked so then I tailed back to, to the room and the first experience of hallucinogenics in any way, it is overwhelming a little bit, even now. Like, so I did it intense for a year and I've done it every now and then since in the last three years. And the, the most recent time was actually last night. Um, <laughs> the first time in, in three years was, was last night. It was funny in, in that it was just such a reminder of like, oh no, even like when you've done this a lot, this is all overwhelming. Like it is it's really hard to explain to somebody because there is no experience like it. So you don't have, the only time your brain acts like this, the only way you experience things like this is when you are tripping. And so you don't really have a cultural language or anything to compare it to because it is overwhelming and it's so incredibly different to anything you've experienced. Um, Did you ever yeah. try acid? I've done acid a bit. I've done acid, particularly, I say I haven't done mushrooms for the last three years I've done a lot of acid instead it's um <laughs> how is it different two or three kind of contingent differences so one is that acid lasts a lot longer so I'm a lot less comfortable taking the amounts of acid that I would with magic mushrooms because if it goes wrong and it's difficult time when you are tripping is weird anyway four hours can feel like an eternity eight hours can feel like an eternity if you double that and then it's bad it just starts to make me a bit nervous and I, I am very much as, as much as at times this conversation is going to make it sound like I'm a bit reckless with it I am very much about safety and control and so acid not as comfortable doing really big amount the second I would say is that acid tends to I find the visuals are a little bit similar 
but because I'm not taking ego death experience levels of like the psychological impacts, like what it puts your brain through is just like acid is a bit like, oh, it's a bit loopy. It's a bit trippy. And I, I find psychologically acid is probably closer to weed than mushrooms. And, and not, not to say that it's very similar, but if I was to put them on a scale, whereas at the amounts that I'm taking, if it goes the way I want it to, there are huge periods that are closer to being, the closest I could give you is it's like being lost in a really intense dream that you believe is really real. And in that dream world, you are unaware of the fact that you are your person with your story and your collective thoughts and your collective opinions. You are whatever character that dream throws up, which is not you. And all of those experiences feel real for you. And as I said, it can feel like years that you're in there and you are not aware that you are tripping and there is another you back home in your bed, which is nothing I've ever experienced on, on LSE. Are you able to sleep? It's hard to say because it, it's not necessarily sleep, but you are kind of knocked out. Like you, it, it fully takes over you. Like you can be talking to somebody and then like, it just like, boom, you're coming with me. And then it, it's close to, I guess, to being comatose than anything else because you're kind of non-responsive to the world a bit. I mean, I've never had people like poking and prodding me and trying to get me to snap out of it, but I definitely have been, you know, mid conversation and then just kind of zoned out. And, you know, next thing I know, yeah, just sitting where I was and the person I was talking to somewhere else or whatever. So now you have been comfortable enough to do it around others. Yes, but not often and not a lot of people. It's usually one other person. And that's purely out of having found people I trust who already do it. I'm quite selfish. I won't do it with somebody on their first time more often than not, because I don't want to be babysitting someone if it goes wrong for them, because I don't want you taking me down with you, you know. It is a slightly different experience. Although, again, because so much of it, you kind of end up zoned out. You're not really interacting with each other that often anyway. Can you also explain to me what an ego death trip is? My husband said in the Tibetan trip of the dead, which Timothy O'Leary talks about in the psychedelic experience. So I think ego death, heroic dose, they're all kind of the same language. And it is kind of that thing that I was, uh, I was talking about where if you've taken enough of it, you get pulled so far away from your own reality that there are moments where you genuinely think like, A, you completely forget who you are. So the ego, that all of the things that are wrapped up in your personality are at least in that period of time, completely gone to you. You are a blank canvas and whatever the mushrooms are giving you. Throughout that experience, there will be times that are you feel kind of, and it, it can vary between trip to trip. Sometimes you feel like you're kind of, like being pulled apart at a molecular level sort of thing, like you are dissolved into the great nothingness. Other times you feel kind of lost in the cosmos, but it's always always a feeling of, and this is why where it gets really hard to articulate, right? It is always a feeling of this overwhelming everything and nothing. And like, like, like your brain is being shown too much to fully comprehend, but you, it feels like, just everything and nothing all at once. And within that, it can be it can be super emotionally challenging because there are there are moments of confronting just like, I guess just how much the individual of you is 
tiny on a on a scale of what the world is and and then also within time i guess it's one of the rare times you start to think about all of those things and that that can be super confronting but it can also be super like beautiful and powerful and make you feel super connected to everything as well it does depend occasionally on on your mood and what you're bringing into the day if you have like an ego death it doesn't last the whole trip right and so what what it kind of feels like occasionally is like you are strapped into this roller coaster, right? And that's probably the closest emotional thing. And just everything is whizzing past you at a speed. You can't fully make sense of anything. And at, at times during that, that's when you just feel completely d- dissolved because you just can't make out anything. And it's just all kind of too much and too grand and too big. And then occasionally, as because as, it kind of comes and goes in waves, Occasionally, then you, your brain will start to like reach for different memories or different things that it thinks it knows. And sometimes they're not even yours. Like I, I you can jump right into like dreams and memories that, that you are not you. And, and it starts to get real trippy. And like, how how is this here in my head? Like, why is this something that I'm going through? But other times they are definitely memories that you remember. And then when you're there, it doesn't feel like you're dreaming these things or imagining or hallucinating them they feel real at the time you know and then you kind of pull back into the roller coaster and it all starts again tell me about some memories that you have faced the most recent one yesterday it was funny and it's probably a again it's, it, so much of it is I think slightly random in that it is you know your brain kind of pulls on these loose threads and it sees what comes with it and so I guess maybe nature of I usually we travel quite a bit like four or five times a year we haven't traveled for three months and so a lot of my memories yesterday were just travel memories they were just you know things that places I've been beaches I've been to they weren't particularly significant and to be to be honest actually I think it's had huge mental health benefits for me but I don't think any of them has been going back into memories that had any kind of meaning I think most of them kind of tend to be for me so far which is probably a lucky thing they've kind of always tended to be happy nice kind of just just standard kind of memories I think the biggest benefits for me so far have come from at the end and at the start or after the trip just having a moment to reflect on just how I'm feeling what's come up why it's there and even then like a lot of that I, I don't think a lot of it is kind of really deliberate and like really transparent in like oh I thought that and so it means that oh therapy done you know I think it's a it tends to be a lot more complex than that I was speaking to a psychological researcher who is currently working on getting these things classified as, as as medicine and the way I explained it to him and he was like no that that's the way I think the research suggests it kind of works is that kind of like a survival mechanism of your brain. The more you do something, the more your brain wants to do it because that path is safe and it knows what happens there. And so it's kind of shortcuts, it requires less energy and it feels safer. But in that, sometimes, you know, addiction or anxiety, which is repetitive thoughts, all of that, if your brain keeps doing that, it will go back to that because it knows that it's kind of safe and that it's easy but it may not necessarily be what you want to do, particularly particularly in the case of, I guess, addiction. And so what magic mushrooms and I think hallucinogenics in general, but definitely magic mushrooms are really good at doing is because they turn down the, the neural frontal cortex, the bit of your brain that kind of conducts it and wants everything to be super efficient and make a lot of sense. They give your brain freedom to kind of do a bunch of other stuff and kind of 
I guess, shake away some of those part, well-worn paths so that the next time your brain has to make a decision, it's less attracted to that same well-worn path. It doesn't take it away completely. It's not like you're a different person overnight, but it definitely makes it easier to break repetitive habits or start new ones. Yeah, my husband actually mentioned that. He said one of the reasons he would want to do it is to get out of ruts in his mind and that your mind is like a ski track and you can develop new patterns in the mind. Like he would want to do it to get new insights, new intuition, new inspiration. Like, do you feel like you have been able to do that? Yeah, yeah, 100%. And so am I here saying magic mushrooms fix my anxiety? Probably not, right? But it definitely was one piece that helped a lot. And there is also research that shows like the create, your creative problem solving gets better. And it's that same thing. It's your brain getting better at being malleable, which is probably gets less and less malleable as you, as you become an adult, right? And I think the ski track example is perfect. I think it's a really good description of it. And I think you definitely can feel just, yeah, a bit of fresh perspective, a bit of extra zest. And, and again, I asked the researcher, like, how much of that is placebo? Because a lot of people who take it for these reasons are going in thinking this is going to do it. And you know, a bit like Space Jam's Michael's secret drink, you know, just how much of it is thinking that you've got this. And he was like, oh no, like with microdosing, which is super popular in Silicon Valley, sorry, tech bros, microdosing so far seems to be a placebo. But he was like, with macrodosing, like with big amounts, absolutely, it's been proven to have differences. And, and particularly, particularly around addiction and depression. And biggest recent study, I believe, is, is one they did in the US with people who were terminally ill and so crippled by their own mortality that they couldn't write their own wills because they just couldn't face the fact that they were going to die, right? And they they gave these people a bunch of magic mushrooms, which I would never have recommended because mindset is one of the most important things with going in to make sure you don't have a bad trip. But uh, scientists do strange things, I guess. And so they gave them, you know, about, I think, eight grams or six grams of magic mushrooms the heroic dose and I think it was something like 70 or 80 percent of them went away and wrote a will within like a week of their trip you know it was actually ridiculous the amount of people that had been doing all this other stuff and couldn't get there and then they give them the old bag of magic mushrooms and there you go that is pretty amazing yeah what was the average age of the people in that study do you know I'm guessing they might have been young just because again the whole idea of being unable to write a will because you're surprised by your own mortality I think that that probably strikes you it's more like at least for me I imagine it'll it would strike me a lot more if I felt like I was being ripped off some years I'm not writing this will until I get my the years that I'm owed. wow you did say that you did some journaling yeah did it contribute at all to your comedy that's a good question I do have a story about my my magic mushrooms. Nothing that I wrote on them made it into the show. So what would happen often, so I I would journal as part of the experience. And what would happen often is, I'm sure this is not unique to magic mushrooms. I'm sure anyone who's done any drugs and has a degree of thinking they are profound has a moment where you write something down and you're like, ha I am the stoned philosopher. I figured it out. This is the meaning of life. And then you go and read it back and it's questionable whether it's even in a language that you understand. And then on top of that, even if it is, it's like, oh, this is either trite and something that has been said a lot before and is, you know, maybe 
it makes sense, but it's not some new key that you've unlocked to the universe. Or alternatively, it is something that just doesn't make sense. Like the rabbit knows the answers or something ridiculous like that, you know? But, but I think the journaling side of things was interesting, partly because of that, partly because it felt profound at the time. It was always interesting to see what my head was spitting out when I did decide to write. Until I was doing a lot of magic mushrooms, what I don't think I'd had is an emotional integration with that. Like, it's one thing to say it and hear it and rationally understand it. And it's another thing to, like, feel it deep in your being that you, like, understand this notion. And again, it's not something that you can hold on to for a huge degree of time. It's not something that you go out into the world and you're radiating wisdom and everyone's like, ah, a shaman. But it, it does feel good at the time. And I do think it helps a little bit with perspective. It helps a little bit with when something feels super emotionally overwhelming or it's one of those repetitive thoughts you have, gives you a branch to grab to, to go, okay, I'm going to get off this this ski track. Maybe it like gets some heavy duty off-road skis, chucks them on and goes, okay, we're getting off this track. We know where that ends and we'll go over there. In a way that without that kind of feeling it gets harder to do. It gets easier to just go down the ski track because we're already down on this path. You did say that you were in a 10-year relationship. Yes. Prior to doing this. Yes. Do you think that contributed? I started dating this girl in my 20s. I'd gone and done my degree. I had, at the start, after my degree, I had this period of where I quit all my jobs because I had anxiety. I got diagnosed with anxiety. Then I started comedy and then I quit comedy and then I started again and then I started another job and then I quit that. And I feel like what I was kind of doing was searching for something that made me feel feel a little bit better, but like isolating things, I guess like a good scientist, like, okay, if we change this one variable, what happens there? If we change this, it was a bad relationship that I didn't know I felt stuck in. And I think it wasn't until I started experimenting with how I improve my life and be more honest with myself and stuff that it became something where I was like, okay, that's a variable that I have yet to change and see what happens and so yeah pulled the kind of safety blanket off this thing that had been hiding at the back of the room and said hey what about that up until starting in the workforce your high school wants you to get a good grade so they tell you school is important and if you're good at it good things will happen I went to a super working class school but because my grades weren't too bad they kind of let me have the run of the roost like I could not go to maths class and study on my own and that marked me as there because that way I don't turn up and distract their students, but I don't drop out of school, right? They let me make things like that. And so I've had this 20 years of the world saying, because you're kind of academically good, we're going to treat you special. Then you go into uni and you kind of can self-manage and it doesn't matter, right? You work the way you want to. And if you get good grades, nobody cares. And then I went into the workforce and all of a sudden you're not special anymore and they just want you to make the money and there's no amount of hand-holding or congratulations, you did what we paid you to do. And that felt super foreign to me. And I think that was one of the first things that I guess the anxiety isn't caused by the lack of positive reinforcement. But I think the positive reinforcement you get as a childhood, if you know how to get it, was a way for me to mask it, to hide it from myself, right? And then you get in the workforce and they're not telling you that. And for me, I was like, oh no, I am terrible. No way, shit. I'll get a new job 
so that they don't find out. And that was that was what I kept doing. I kept being like, oh, they, they, they're going to find out that I'm not good at this and then they're going to fire me. So do you know what I'll do? I'll get a new job. And then I did, just kept doing that. And it took yeah, it took six attempts until one of my friends said, no, nah, I, think, I think the problem may not be the jobs. I think you need to talk to somebody. Yikes. Yeah. How did your parents react to all of this? Because you did say you were living with them. So they didn't know for the longest time I would get expensive hotel rooms every single time. Like it was super regimented routine. I'd check in at two. I would book for one night. So I would dress really smart because that's the best way to get an upgrade at a hotel. Because if you're only there for one night and the cheap rooms are booked, they'll give it to a one night booking so long, an upgrade to a one night booking so long as you don't look like you're going to piss off the expensive clients. So I'd dress smart. I'd check in at two. I'd go. I'd like case the room out, I'd take down any art, da, da, da. and then I'd meditate, then I'd eat the mushrooms, and then I'd meditate some more, have my trip. My parents didn't know definitely the year that I was doing it. I think it wasn't until Edinburgh, so I was living in the UK by then, and my, I was doing my Edinburgh show, my parents came over to see the show in Edinburgh, which was super nice, but then I, I told the story on stage of how when I was living at home with my parents, I'd once a month go go you take a heroic dose of magic mushrooms in a five-star hotel room uh, and yeah I, I think look I think they were shocked to be honest at first and I can't say they approve like I couldn't talk to them about it now it's not like going home for Christmas dinner and being like oh yeah you know while I'm here maybe some magic mushrooms I think it's a bit don't ask don't tell but I also think they kind of they know that I am not easily persuaded by them at this point and that they've got to trust my judgment because I'm going to do it anyway. And so it, as much as it's not something I feel comfortable talking to them about, it's also not something that they've ever felt they need to say, like, hang on a second, what's going on here, you know? So I, I think as far as parental relationships with high-class hallucinogenics, I think it's as good as it gets. Oh my God. What degree did you go into? So I originally went into psychology, funnily enough. I did three quarters of a psychology degree and then realized that as much as I find psychology super interesting and like understanding the way people work and what makes them tick interesting, I think from a career level, the emotional weight of having to always talk to people who are in emotional need, I, I think Again, with the whole anxiety thing and stuff, I, I don't think I am emotionally built to, to bear that burden. Um, and so, yeah, ended up going into advertising instead. And what led you to comedy? It's a good question. I always liked comedy before I ever performed it. I think I'd, I'd been watching stand-up ever since I can remember. I always liked to entertain myself by making people laugh in the people saying like oh class clown class clown is that it wasn't like that because I, I I was studying and I was doing well in school but it was also I I was understimulated and I wanted to entertain myself I guess when it comes down to it though really what happened is I loved comedy and I was going to a lot of shows and then I'd started thinking about whether or not I could do it and then I saw somebody do so badly that I was like, well, if he gets to do that, then I should at least have a try um, and then never look back. Wow. What was it first like when you got on stage? The anxiety and the energy and whatever, the first gig that I did went really well. And I was like, ha, I'm Eddie Murphy. I'm here. 
I've made it. And then the next three or four were horrendous. And the jokes didn't change. I was like, I, I couldn't for the life of me figure it out. But then I've seen it happen so often since. And I do think there's something in the energy and the nervousness of a first time performer that just once you lose that, the jokes then have to stand on their own. And comedy is not a natural thing, right? Like the funniest people in the room at a pub are not good comedians more often than not because at a pub everyone's got context right like you don't have to be a great empath to be a funny person in your group of friends because you've got this shared cultural language so if I say you know and then Greg tripped on a banana everyone's like ah Greg he's always tripping on shit ah ha 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 right but if you say that to a room full of strangers they're like who is Greg why do I care? Why was there a banana there? Like there is so much more to fill in. And so great natural comics often make bad stand-ups. The actual environment is so important to the creation for me that I actually don't really write my jokes down on paper anymore. What I'll do is I'll, I'll think of the ideas in my head like, oh, the, you know, I roughly, I'm talking about magic mushrooms and this is, this is roughly what I thought was funny in my head. And then I'll get on stage and I'll hope to panic myself into the, the punchline while I'm on stage because the energy of, of, of being on stage is so different to writing it down on paper, right? So it's the, it is the unfortunate thing is that whenever I'm telling a new joke on stage, me and my audience are hearing it for the first time together legitimately. Um, I love that you just said panic myself to a punchline. Yeah, <laughs> It is because, because again, on paper, you can be meticulous but, and you can be clever or whatever, but there is no skin in the game. There is no emotion in it. When you get on stage and you start talking, from the minute you start talking and you don't know where the story ends, your brain really has to be like, make this funny now. And I think sometimes the heightened emotion comes up with something that is A, more natural to the way that you speak because you're speaking it rather than writing it, and then B, funnier because there is just so much more skin in the game. That definitely keeps you on your feet. Yeah, I've been doing comedy for, for just over 10 years now. I think what kind of gives you the, the freedom and luxury to do that is that I know if that joke goes poorly, I have enough like stage craft and experience to like, okay, I'll win the audience back for a bit before I try another new bit art because there has been some trust lost and I owe you some laughs before I try dumb shit like that again. I love it. Okay, so I, I got to get back to the mushrooms just a little bit. Where could I get them? I mean, in the US, it's hard. And to be, to be honest, even in the UK, it's hard. So I had three or four people back home in Australia that I could rotate through. And that meant there was always somebody who did. Then I moved to the UK and it got a lot more difficult and a lot more expensive. But what I have started to find here were people who buy grow kits from Amsterdam and then grow it themselves. And similar to the, my mates who went picking, often the ones who grow it themselves will have excess supply occasionally. So you buy it at half what a street drug dealer would charge you. And that's enough for them to buy a whole new kit and everybody's happy. 
I don't know in the US because like obviously in, in the UK, the, the grow kits come direct from Amsterdam where it's legal. I don't know, don't know what happens other places in the world. I think it is interesting though, because finding magic mushrooms is hard here, but finding finding drugs in the UK is not like that. There's people on buses when, when buses weren't illegal, there were people on buses who would go around handing out business cards alternative pharmacist is what they would call themselves but it's like oh you're a drug dealer you're not a drug dealer and so they were kind of diamond dozen I'd, you'd be in beer gardens and people would come around with their business cards like but hallucinogenics are just less popular and magic mushrooms in particular i think lsd like uh, most standard street dealers will have lsd or or something that they're selling as lsd but i i found mushrooms are a lot more um a lot more of a niche product Oh my God, that's so funny. Did your visions change? Did they evolve? Yeah, they, they, they change. I don't know if evolve, but they do change. Like every every trip has its own flavor, I, like its own idiosyncrasies. There are some that feel a lot more dream-like or teleportation-like, or like you've ended up on a another planet or in another life or in another dimension. They feel a lot closer to familiar for longer because... Again, similar to sleep or dreaming, like you're kind of being transported here, there and everywhere. You don't remember much. You're only remembering bits and pieces. But there are some where most of what you remember feels closer to dreaming or living another life or whatever. There are some where most of it feels closer to memory. Like I said, there are some where most of it feels more like being kind of a nothing, an unnamed, unknown, unknowable nothing in an abyss. So it does vary. Like, do you feel like you've been able to heal yourself? That's a good question. I, I don't think heal is the right word because that would kind of imply that the, the root emotions don't exist anymore. I think my ability to manage and to acknowledge those feelings early and to say, hey, stop, is this thought or feeling real? Is it valid? Is it necessary? If yes, okay. If no, let's do something else has increased absolutely significantly and I think they're right now where I'm at in my life I've just got a promotion right so that that's one of the reasons that my anxiety is higher and one of the reasons I ended up taking mushrooms yesterday is that you started to have those same sort of feelings and thoughts and emotions as right back at the start where I was quitting all my jobs because I didn't think I could do them right so they're there but what I'm a lot better at now than I was a decade ago is going okay yes This is what you're thinking and feeling. Just because you think and feel it doesn't mean it's true and real. Your brain has a habit of trying to trick you. How do we pick this apart? Figure out where these things are coming from. What can we address? What can we ignore? What can we do to help? And that ability to to like pick through that is from a decade ago, it's, it's unrecognizable. A decade ago, I was just like, yes, that thought is real. That thought is true. Let's act on that. But any kind of mental idiosyncrasy that is about repetitive thoughts, whether it be addiction, anxiety, depression, I think there is an acknowledgement of the fact that your brain is the way it is. And you will always have a tendency to want to do these things or to, to want to think these things. So you are always living with it. I'm not too precious to say like, I'm super comfortable or confident with the way I handle things now because it has there's been enough data over a long enough period of time that says that I kind of got this under control more often than not and that that's a good thing you know that's amazing how many grams did that take 
<laughs> I would say at this point, it's probably been close to 80, 90 grams. I cannot wait to hear what my dad has to say about this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be interesting. I have showed now my parents my conversation with the researcher, the psychological researcher. And it was actually funny because so I did that conversation as part of my podcast and my wife's mother who is quite anti-drug and just like as as anyone and and we've got a really good relationship I love my wife's mom so when I launched the the podcast I was so nervous about her hearing that episode but it's it's not a conversation that's come up and she's a huge supporter of my podcast so it's just one of those things that I'm hoping never comes up but the way that hallucinogenics impacts the brain is increasingly being researched as a medicine and 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 not a drug and I think if you come at it at a pace of like no there is scientific research that suggests that, like it's like being one of the first people to take penicillin to some extent right like it's like at that time it was a ridiculous thing you're eating mold what you know whereas yeah a, a lot of things that become medication were once not considered things you should do all right well this has been great thank yeah. you so much Thanks, cheers yeah. now Let's switch it over to Grandpa. He's an Australian stand-up comedian living in London, and he's a podcaster as well. And he gets all his confidence by making sure that his brain is at ease. He's a person who can't really handle pressure of anything that he does. And the way he relaxes himself and gets himself pumped up it looks like he needs to take a trip to La La Land first. And by doing that, he is able to relax and perform. As he brings up, is this a form of releasing his tension and, and developing his brain to not have these anxiety attacks? Is it a form of mental illness that he has? Is it something where he finds that's the only way he can relax himself, be able to pursue things with confidence? It's a very interesting formula, I do say. Quite a trip. He needs to take a trip with his brain first. He even studied psychology for three years. And when he saw all the different problems that people were having, he says, I don't want to do that. When he wants to perform even in the comedy club, he has stopped and started even doing that a few times. And he says, gosh, when I start writing things down and, and make it really exact or precise in some manner, it's just too much pressure to be able to perform that. It's not natural. It's not like uh, in a debate. Uh, the rebuttal round is a lot more effective sometimes than putting on your presentation. It's that being able to think on your feet is really a, a tremendous quality to have. And some people, they put pressure on themselves to have to sit within the lines and they then are not able to remember all the lines or be able to uh, project them the way they want, okay, where it becomes more mechanical. And he wants to be able to be loose as goosey and be able to do it on the fly and be able to be comfortable at whatever he does. Is this a way to relieve your brain of pressure? There's a lot of people that have different issues and problems. They go and see a psychiatrist. They try to get them to talk out their issues and problems. And in some cases, as you know, even children today that have issues the first thing uh, the doctor wants to do is drug them to try to calm them down. Isn't this the same thing? Is that he's just trying to calm himself down 
so that he can be relaxed to perform or to build confidence in doing whatever he wants to ascertain. It's a very uh, interesting development of people that take drugs or have to take a, a drink before they perform or get together with family or friends and have a powwow to get motivated to do whatever that task might be. Is that a lot of times, as we've stated in previous shows, is that we all need confidence and we need encouragement, but to use drugs or magic mushrooms to get the uh, job done is part of the debate of this interview. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. Hold up. 